0: This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com, that's l e x i p o l.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host Rob Lawrence and don't forget these days you can listen to us on the podcast platform of your choice. And also, you can see us on YouTube. And uh, the advantage of seeing us on YouTube is that not only can you see our faces, but also the images, graphics, charts, uh, graphs, etc., that we put on to support the discussion. So if you're listening to us, then go over to YouTube and actually watch and see. Now, today we're talking about uh, emergency management. We're talking about emergency response and we're talking about how you deal with the largest non-nuclear explosion ever. And uh, if you haven't got any clues to that, that's the port of Beirut in 2020. And to help me tell that story, I'm delighted to welcome uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Shorki Amin-Addin, Adine, is the uh, Director of uh, Planning and Development and the Assistant Medical Director for the Lebanese Red Cross in uh, Beirut, I'm assuming. Shorki, welcome. Thank
1: you. Nice to to be with you, uh, Rob, here.
0: Yeah. So first of all, before we get into the Beirut port discussion, talk about uh, how EMS, and this is actually part of an ongoing series that I've been doing, but talk about how EMS works in the Lebanon.
1: Okay. So um, in Lebanon, uh, unfortunately, uh, we do not have a uh, government-led EMS system. So in Lebanon, the Lebanese Red Cross is mandated by the Lebanese government to provide access to pre-hospital healthcare services. And uh, the way uh, the EMS uh, functions in Lebanon is a bit weird because our system is led by volunteers. So the way we do this is that we have, uh, so Lebanon is a relatively small country. We're talking about 10,452 square kilometers. Um, and this the, to cover the whole area, we have around 47 EMS stations all over uh, the country with volunteers who have their own jobs uh, most of the days and who get a, a training uh, that covers first responder level, emergency medical technician basic level, in addition to some NEMT courses such as PHTLS to be certified as emergency medical practitioners. And then afterwards uh, they start uh, responding to emergencies. Uh, This is done completely free of charge. So the uh, service itself is delivered for free. And at the same time, the volunteers provide uh, their time uh, also on voluntary uh, basis. Um, The way all these stations are connected is via four dispatch centers that are present in four different areas in the country. Uh, we use uh, the same uh, or standards very similar to uh, the United States. We use an American system in terms of uh, dispatch with all callers interview and then dispatching, followed by uh, a curriculum that has been benchmarked with an A.M.T. in order to provide the emergency medical technician uh, basic uh, scope of practice in addition to the use of electronic patient care reporting. All of this is being overseen by a group of medical directors uh, who support and providing clinical oversight and clinical support, and approving clinical guidelines and providing uh, standing uh, orders, in addition to uh, ensuring quality improvement via the review of electronic patient care reports and ensuring to what level we are adhering with clinical guidelines.
0: Excellent. It's uh, exciting to hear that uh, you're working very closely uh, with uh, NAEMT in that. And also, uh, before we started recording uh, for full disclosure, I, we realized we also had a connection in uh, our good friend, Jerry Overton. Jerry, of course, is the Dean of uh, the National Academies of Emergency Medical Dispatch, also, an uh, international man about the EMS town. And uh, A, of course, uh, Jerry brought me to the US, but he plays has played a major part in the development of uh, the Lebanese Red Cross, right? Of course. So uh,
1: Jerry has been supporting the Lebanese Red Cross since 2012. He supported the uh, development and the rollout of the first EMS strategy in Lebanon. And since uh, 2012 up to today, he's been uh, providing uh, uh, some great support for the Lebanese Red Cross and reviewing and updating It's EMS uh, strategy and uh, actually overcoming. He's he's the brain whenever we want to overcome any challenge that we have or whenever we are facing some uh, issues here in
0: Lebanon. Fantastic. Jerry, if you're listening and watching, you are, sir, a global legend. Now then, let's move on to the 4th of August, 2020. Of course, if you think back then, we're in the height of the pandemic globally. So there's problem number one. Problem number two: You have a warehouse full of ammonium nitrate uh, f- uh, fertilizer, slash, uh, you know, the basis of an, of explosive, and it exploded. So, why don't you just kind of just set 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 this up for us in terms of what actually happened? Okay, so let's
1: start. First of all, it was around seven past six in the afternoon, so that the rush hour. Everyone just coming out of their work, going back home. And uh, again, this was Beirut, which is the capital city of uh, Lebanon. So uh, the amount of traffic was hideous, although we were uh, suffering from a pandemic at the time. However, to set the story, like to to give you the the full oversight of what was happening at the time, Lebanon was not just a regular country doing day-to-day business. At that time, Lebanon was suffering from a complex crisis situation. So since 2014, Lebanon has been responding to an ongoing Syrian refugee crisis being uh, uh, close uh, landwise to Syria. We had over a million Syrian refugees present in Lebanon, of which we had around 200,000 who were who are living in Beirut at the time, as per the UNHCR uh, data. In addition to that, at the time of the uh, explosion, Lebanon was also responding to COVID-19 outbreak with around 250 new cases uh, on daily basis, which is considered a big number, again, given the size of the country. And at the same time, Lebanon was responding to a socioeconomic crisis where we had a huge devaluation of the Lebanese pound, which lost around over 90% of its value and this has resulted in overstretching the healthcare system so thin given the uh, uh, increase and the surge in the need for healthcare uh support especially with covid going on with many people losing access to their uh, uh to healthcare so this was the current situation and as you mentioned uh, the port of beirut is present just in the middle of the city in the center of the city and no one actually knew at the time that one of our warehouses was storing ammonium nitrates. And unfortunately, what happened is that uh, next to these ammonium nitrates, some fireworks were stored. And we heard over the news that uh, some fire a, a warehouse that has some fireworks has just uh, caught fire in the port, and, and firefighters are there too. Respond. This this was it. It was just a normal emergency. Firefighters trying to put off a fire in the port of Beirut. A normal call that you would receive any day uh on the business. So I mean and- this
0: this is the perfect storm, isn't it? You've got socioeconomic <laughs> problems, you have refugees, you have political uh, unrest. Uh, you have, you know, this, uh, and I think that it was caught the, seized from a ship that couldn't go any further into the Mediterranean. Yeah. And the, the the judge said, put all of this ammonium nitrate, which can either be a fertilizer, a great fertilizer, or indeed, I did some research, uh, Shorky, it's 80% of explosives used in commercial, uh, for commercial use in the US mm. is based on ammonium nitrate. So you've got a warehouse that's a bomb, and it's on fire. Exactly. Wow. Exactly.
1: You got the perfect recipe for a disaster. Yes. And so, then,
0: uh, the, the the fire then obviously goes out of control.
1: Yeah. So the fire got out of control, and it was a matter of seconds, whereby the whole topography and geography of the city changed. So I live in the Moor area, which is around ten to fifteen minutes south of Beirut, and uh, Rob, I can I felt the explosion as if it actually took place inside my city it was that a uh, powerful so um i remember i was i was uh, in, a, in an online meeting providing some uh, uh discussions about the response to covid at the time because it was the hot topic and literally the whole house shook by the pressure wave that was created by the uh but by, by the uh explosion and this was not only the case in my city it was the case miles away from the uh from the diameter like if you trace the pressure wave that was created by the uh by the explosion you can see that it was felt miles away and this really affected our perception of what's happening because whenever an explosion happens, and we're we're used to having smaller right. explosions yeah. in Lebanon, unfortunately, uh, it, it's never the same. But w- what, what usually happens is that uh, our uh, protocol says, you ensure safety and then you send two ambulances. Unfortunately, at that day, we weren't able to locate the explosion. So I still remember, I got the call, I was um, one of the commanders for EMS, so we got all the, all the uh, tactical commanders got the alert to check who can arrive. Uh, my area of the city, we still had access to the command center. So I rushed my car to the uh, command center. I arrived around seventeen minutes after the explosion, and by the time I arrived, I still remember we had a board, a whiteboard, and our dispatchers were not able at like. 17 or 20 minutes after the explosion to locate the exact site of the explosion. We were clueless because every single neighborhood was calling and uh, 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 informing us that the explosion took place in their neighborhood. We had over 30 different locations, each one claiming that the explosion was in their actual neighborhood. So I've had had that discussion. uh,
0: So I was going to say, I've I've had that discussion in previous webinars where I talk about uh, what I describe as the fog of war, right? It's all going on. You're sensorily overloaded. The information is coming in from every single direction. You don't have the time to process, to understand, and in fact, to discern. And that's the same thing all the way up the chain of command almost, because folk are trying to figure out, well, what, where, why, when, and how. And you had exactly the same situation there. Exactly. And even just uh, to make the things
1: more clear, uh, so in 2005 in Lebanon we had the assassination of the Prime Minister Hariri, uh, which created a uh, some sort of a similar but much smaller scale uh, which triggered a response from the Lebanese Red Cross. And when the explosion took place, the houses of the current Prime Minister, the, the doors of the house of the current Prime Minister actually were uh, destroyed by the uh, by the explosion. So the first reaction and the first call that we got was from the prime minister office saying that uh, this is an attempt to assassinate the prime minister. And I still remember that the first two ambulances before I arrived were actually dispatched to the prime minister uh, uh, residence because it was thought that it was another assassination uh, taking place. So b- by the time I arrived, And as soon as I entered the dispatch room, it was pure chaos as you are just uh, describing. Uh, You were getting tons of information and it's very hard to process all these information and to make something useful out of it because literally everyone's saying, yeah, we have an explosion here and
0: you have no clue
1: what has just happened.
0: So in terms of so you, you you've arrived that we know we know we've seen the videos and actually one of the things you described there is what uh, we used to call in the military the flash to bang. okay you see it before you feel it and hear it and the videos exactly show that that point of explosion and then you can see the shock wave and yeah. then that wave comes out and is you know overpressure perhaps or indeed devastating. And it took out a lot of infrastructure. I mean, I think St. George's Hospital was less than a mile away, um, and other medical facilities and infrastructure were were rendered practically inoperable. So that's probably the first biggest challenge that, uh, from a medical response perspective that you have. Yeah, definitely. So um, from a medical
1: perspective, uh, even St. George Hospital, uh, they... It took them like an hour or two to understand what has just happened and to understand that they need to evacuate the hospital. Uh, For us, the first obstacle was trying to identify the location. And it took around 20, 25 minutes easily until we started triangulating data, receiving different data from different people, having eyes on the field in order to gather enough information to know what has just happened, to understand the scope and the scale of what we are dealing with. And once we started to understand the scale of the incident, and once we started uh, 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 to uh, know that we're dealing with over 200 people dead, over 6,500 people injured, uh, we're talking about more than 300,000 people who lost their uh, hospitals. It was then that we started asking ourselves, okay, what about our uh, uh, hospitals? So the hospitals that usually are a like they, they are one of the resources that we refer to, uh, and and we have to uh, uh, evacuate patients to. Suddenly they became another responsibility, a liability that we have to deal with. Especially that we had four dysfunctional hospitals in the vicinity. So the hospitals that are the first to come to your mind when you want to evacuate the, your patients were inoperable anymore and not only in- inoperable, but you had to also assign resources to be able to evacuate them. So uh, so yeah, it, it, it was uh, a bit overwhelming over the first uh, uh, few minutes. In addition to that, again, this was an urban city. So it's uh, 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 Beirut is a highly urban area. And uh, again, it was rush hour. So gaining access to G zero to ground zero took around forty minutes easily before we can before our uh, uh, EMTs were actually on site trying to evaluate what's happening.
0: So in terms of the resource that the Red Cross and EMS and pre-hospital services were able to put on site at some point in that whole uh, you know explosions pathway. What did you manage to get there, and and how soon did it happen?
1: So, uh, from the time we assumed command until we completed the operation, which was around uh, a 12-hour-long operation, uh, we were able to have 125 ambulances on site, and we were able to treat and transport uh, 2,500 patients. In addition to putting our blood banks on alert in order to get blood units and support and transporting these to the hospitals, in addition to management of dead bodies and again transporting them to, to the uh, places that uh, to morgues and, and different hospitals.
0: But I, I guess the question is that the, the picture we've just painted is total devastation with close in uh, infrastructure is leveled, flattened, out of service. Where are you taking people to? OK, so not only that, Rob, uh, what about our
1: people? One of, right. the EMS, one of our EMS stations that is uh, facing the port was completely destroyed. One of our ambulances, uh, two of our ambulances were severely damaged. And even our rescuers, some of them got injured because of the blast. So we had to also think of our own people. Right. So what we did is we activated our incident command uh, uh, structure. Uh, Our incident command structure uh, follows uh, the British system, <laughs> I guess, the silver, the bronze, silver, and gold. Yep. or
0: Let me uh, do some U.S. Uh, translation at this point, Shoki, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we, we've we actually done a, pre- full disclosure, we've done a previous webinar where we had this discussion, but uh, the potted version is that in the U.S. we use ICS, the Incident Command System. Mm-hmm. We have the, the notion of uh, the unified command. Uh, we also have ESF, of course, for those watching and listening in the U.S., the emergency support functions. Uh, In the UK, and clearly in Lebanon, the the system operates under a gold, silver, and bronze strata. Um, Obviously, the the, the gold is is, is our unified commander at the top of the tree, moving down to to tactical and and to operational levels through the silver and the bronze. And so uh, it's the same, but different. It's different, but the same. So, sorry, do go on. (laughs)
1: So uh, what we did is we started to assign uh, our commanders and then we uh, uh, moved into uh, getting the uh, uh, dispatching the resources that were closest to the site of the explosion. So these are our EMS stations in Beirut area, and then accordingly we started getting getting or dispatching additional resources from uh, uh, a wider and wider and wider circle, all the way until we had uh, ambulances that came all the way from the. Uh, extreme north and the extreme south and the extreme east sides of the country in order to participate in the response, yet at the same time ensuring that we are not jeopardizing our day-to-day EMS activity because at the same time we were still having non-explosion related emergency. People were still having heart attacks and seizures and strokes and car accidents and we had to respond to these as well. So um, that that was the first thing that we we did, and simultaneously, as part of the command cell, I had uh, one of the staff in the uh, command cell who was dedicated to uh, uh, cross-checking the capacities of the nearby hospitals and the uh, uh, number of cases based on the triage tags, so how many red cases they can receive, how many yellow cases they can receive, and so on, so that we can uh, mobilize our resources accordingly and transport the uh, patients accordingly.
0: So it sounds like an amazing amount of communication. And in the second half, Shulky, as as you know, that I believe that communication is the first battle, um, and so we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Also, what I want to do is we're going to take a quick break and listen to a message from our sponsor, And then when we come back, uh, what I'm really interested in, of course, something of this magnitude is hearing about your lessons identified and your lessons learned, if that's okay. Sure. So let's just go to a quick message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, Local government and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L E X I P O L.com. And we're back. Remember, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also hit that like and subscribe button. If you're listening to us on a podcast, hit the little check mark in the top right hand corner. It means you have subscribed. And when a new episode drops, then you get notified. Same deal if you're watching us on YouTube. So we want you to uh, catch everything that we talk about here on the EMS One Stop. So today we are in Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, My guest is... uh, Dr. Shorki Amin Adin uh, from the Lebanese Red Cross. We had an amazing first half, Shorki, where we talked, where you set up the situation and the scene. Um, There's some amazing similarities. Why wouldn't there be between every disaster we've ever been involved with in terms of gathering the situation, the fog of war, getting the resources, realizing that our infrastructure perhaps isn't there? We have to think very, very quickly and very, very creatively. Um, But what I always talk about when we we have discussions about emergency management is the aftermath, and the fact that uh, there's a lot of takeaways, there's a lot of lessons that we identify, and I'll this, uh, the identify is an important word there, and sometimes not necessarily lessons that we learn, in other words that we actually can can gather, can benefit from, and can then apply going forward. But you have come up with some amazing lessons. And I want to just sort of throw a few at you and ask you to really explain what you mean. So your lesson number one, uh, Shorky, is don't fish in the same lake. What do you mean by that? Okay. So one of the
1: common things that we do when we're responding to uh, disasters uh, or mass casualty incidents is that we have all resources and then we have several commanders commanding the same resources. And when you have different people giving orders to the same uh, resource, to the same people, then what you end up having is absolute chaos. So, and and this is part of the way we are trained on how to run mass casualty incidents. All the, the, the scenarios that we have, you have this perfect map of uh uh, that 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 talks about spatial scene organization your staging area and then your triage area and then your transportation area and and all of this uh component however when it comes to real life this in addition to this spatial scene organization you have the factor of time and i genuinely believe that uh, uh incidents of this magnitude are very dynamic so things can change at any point in time. You can have additional data at any point in, in, in time that would change or alter your whole response. So the first thing or the first lesson that we learned is that in addition to managing the spatial organization of the team and, and, and having this, uh, 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 these clear areas for triage and a forward point and uh, 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 staging and a CCS, you also need to manage the timeline of, of the incident. And we have discovered that in any major incident, your incident will go through four phases. The first, first phase is you're just, just after T0, when you have a lot of cases, you have very minimal resources. And we learned that here at this time, in this time zone, you just need forward point to provide only basic first aid and triage. So our first ambulances that arrived on site were not involved in transport at all, and they were managed by a dedicated commander. In the meantime, we were creating our scale up in order to have additional resources. These additional resources had a different commander commanding them in order to ensure the proper transfer to the second phase of the uh, uh, response, which is the phase of surge of resources, which is the phase where you have a lot of cases, but at the same time, you have a lot of resources. And that is when you start your transportation. Coordination between the first commander, managing the forward points, and the second commander, managing transportation resources is of utmost importance. However, each one of these commanders had command over their own resources. So they were not fishing in the same lake. They were not taking resources from uh, 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 from the same set of resources. And then the same applies as we move to the third phase, which is the stand-down phase, whereby we were requested to do a lot of interfacility transport into specialized trauma centers and burn centers, whereby we had a third commander whose role was just to organize, coordinate, and manage a third set of resources. And this is temporarily organized, so in different times, in order to ensure this proper interfacility transport. Moving to the last and uh, uh, final phase of the incident, which is the normalization phase, whereby we were only supporting and the management of dead bodies and in search and rescue efforts, which again had their own commander and their own resources. So these four different phases of any incident should be managed by four different commanders who have command over four different sets of resources.
0: Excellent. You make an excellent point there also about hospital capacity and flow. And we certainly saw this in my experience, of the London the London 7-7 bombings, where in order to fill a hospital up, you have to, in the front door, you have to empty it in the back door, you have to make capacity. And therefore that requires, as you say, a second fleet of vehicles. To, to take patients into step-down facilities, to move them into other facilities in order to allow, to allow folk to access the front. It's a perennial international problem. Now, lesson number two is factor emotions. Yeah,
1: so uh, we always, when we train our volunteers, uh, we always use the scenario of Altaland. So Alpha Land is this hypothetical city where all disasters take place and where we do all our simulations. Um, when you are responding to your home city, home city is very different. Beirut is very different from Alpha Land. So although we always train our volunteers and we train our commanders, being the director of learning and development, I've been training commanders for like several years now. However, we always uh, talk about moving to automaticity. So these are the first arrival team reactions. Tac tack, tack, tuck, tuck. These are the steps that you should follow. And we always try to remove the human factor, which is not helpful because when, when a disaster strikes, your emotions will take over at some point. Once you start understanding that this is your home city, and and you mentioned uh, uh, Saint George Hospital being one hospital that was actually destroyed by the by the uh, by the explosion and required actually evacuation. I did my residency and my medical school at Saint George Hospital, so I had a lot of friends and colleagues there, a lot of memories. So when I got the call that Saint George Hospital requires uh, uh, requires evacuation being not only a, a, a commander but also a command instructor it was a few minutes where I forgot all my training and my only concern was is it one and, and we heard that there were victims and people who died at the hospital it was is there anyone that I know there so this is something that we need to uh, uh to take into consideration yeah. in our training so one of the most one of the uh key uh, lessons learned and now it's integrated in our uh trainings is to factor emotions to allow the volunteers to uh uh, uh have a sense of what does it feel that they know being affected and this will eventually trigger automaticity because it will train their brain to uh, 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 imagine worst case scenarios and work accordingly.
0: Excellent, excellent point. So lesson three, and this is a great quote, leadership tokens are earned in management and spent in command. So um,
1: this is again, a quote that I learned during my training from a very close friend, uh, Stuart Blaston from the UK who supported us in building the uh, incident command system for the Lebanese Red Cross. Um, If your uh, paramedics, if your uh, first responders and your EMPs do not trust your decision making in day to day work, you cannot take command over them in times of crisis. They will not trust you during crisis. my, this lesson, again, it's a lesson learned. You earn this respect, you earn this trust in your day-to-day management of the EMS crews. And once you establish this level of trust and this level of confidence and this 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 level of respect from your EMTs and from your uh, paramedics, then it would be much easier to spend these leadership tokens that you have collected in your day-to-day management of EMS during times of crisis. They will be more willing to accept command, to accept uh, 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 your, your decisions, to trust your decision. Yet at the same time, they will be able to approach you if they critically think that one of your decisions might be harmful or might not be so safe.
0: And this is a lesson. We've just had what's called the What Paramedics Want survey here in the U.S. And I have to say that leadership took a bit of a bashing. People were very critical of the standard and the state of leadership. And obviously what you just described there was you have to be a good leader. You have to invest in your people. You have to have your people to trust you so that on the day of an event such as this, then there is that mutual respect and there is the ability to work and work hard, not only for the patient, but also for the system. So I think that is a point very well made. Now, uh, Eisenhower once said that uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. But you say, even in a crisis, plan
1: Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, you know what, we we always think that uh, disasters and crisis are very fast-paced and you just need to deal with the uh, outcome of them. I strongly disagree with that. Uh, I always teach my uh, uh, students and uh, the EMTs here in Lebanon that whenever you are responding to a disaster, you have to always be one step ahead. You should always keep in mind what can or what might happen next and be both uh, 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 physically and emotionally and mentally ready to deal with it. Because the moment you start just uh, uh, responding to the aftermath or to the effects of a certain disaster, you have already lost the battle. So what does this mean in, 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 in such a crisis? It means I still remember that the moment I arrived, I had several questions in mind. What might happen? It was six. So what will happen when sunset is there? If we don't have lights, we cannot operate. Right. We didn't have any electricity in Beirut that night.
0: We lost power. Um, we're going to talk about whiteboards in a second, but uh, i've I've certainly in in my experience, taken the whiteboard and and drawn twenty four blocks of time and then hatched in when it's dark because your reactions, your actions, your operations are different and probably slower when it's when there's no light. And so that that's an excellent point.
1: Definitely. So
0: we have to think of that ahead of time. when whenever
1: I I still remember the first time I heard the term ammonium nitrates, Uh, was not in my trainings. It was not during my residency. It was actually the night of August 4th. I I had never heard what ammonium nitrates, even during my toxicology training, I I didn't get what uh, ammonium nitrates is. So we had to contact our CBRN unit to check if there are uh, our CBRN experts to check if there are any additional uh, 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 PPE that needs to be taken into consideration, how long the exposure... Of our EMTs uh, should be on site. Uh, you have to plan ahead of time for the logistics of your uh, for, and for the well-being of your uh, uh, volunteers. Those who have been on on site for eight hours need to be changed. So even this has to be planned. Uh, to be planned. So we, it, I think, it is mandatory whenever you respond to a disaster not to just be overwhelmed by the current situation, but to take like. To freeze time in your head and think okay this is what i have now i current i understand my current situation what is happening in the next few hours yeah how will it affect me and what can i do to anticipate or to manage and mitigate any risk that i can see
0: excellent i, I think this goes like saying but uh, one of the the two areas in the us that i have been a chief in one of them had the large had millions of gallons of back and crude oil going through on rail cars Pretty much every day, and it was a while before we went. So, what's in these big rail trucks? Oh crap! Um, we need to start thinking about how we mitigate that. And then on the west coast, uh, in my jurisdiction, was the Tesla factory with a uh, an inordinate amount of lithium-ion batteries. And we've seen what happened when they go up in in uh, when they ignite these days. It takes days to put them out. So, again, you know, it, it, it's one of those no-brainers. But please be aware of the hazards. That surrounding you, in your all, ha- it's called an all-hazards plan for a reason. You need to understand what the hazards are. Um, now, lesson five is my favorite four-letter word, chalky. Data. Talk about data.
1: Data. Uh, so, again, whenever we do our trainings and our simulations, uh, most of the times we use these very high-tech uh, uh, interactive boards and dashboards that would show you the movement and the GPS movement of your cars. And then you can have these very uh, uh, flashy uh, uh, figures and, and charts. Um, I've been responding, Rob, to, uh, unfortunately Lebanon is a place that is very rich in disasters. So and since 2019 until today, probably I've experienced what <laughs> a normal EMT would experience in in, in a lifetime. From wildfires, to floods, to protests, to civil unrest.
0: Uh, your, your professional uh, career is measured in dog years, then. One year for <laughs> yeah. us is... Yes. Absolutely.
1: And yeah. uh, one one thing that I have learned is that in times of crisis, especially during the first hours, technology can and will fail you. And uh, we have mentioned this. That so needs to be on a poster
0: everywhere, by the way.
1: A whiteboard can go a very long way in times of crisis. So the way the way I do it, uh, I have my whiteboard in front of me, and then I would have the key events, what has just happened, my current situation, which is a dynamic uh, uh, block that's being updated all the time by the uh, command cell staff. I have my resources, my uh, risk and opportunities, and then on the side I have tasks and objectives. What are the tasks that I have given to everyone And what's the progress on this? And then at the bottom of that board, I have a very long arrow, which is my timeline. And my timeline is all the planning, what will happen next? And the moment I sit, so I'm not allowed to touch a phone. I'm not, as a commander, I'm not allowed to touch the board. I sit and I I see it. I can see at any point in time, if my boss calls and asks if he wants to go and tell the media about my operation, I can provide data in real time about what's happening because everything is on that whiteboard. I know exactly what happened so far. I know my current situation, how many people are responding. I know what are the risks right now. I know what are the opportunities that I have. And I can follow up on my response plan in terms of following the objectives and who is doing what and what's the expected time to achieve that specific objective. And at the same time, I can plan ahead of time and keep going. So data is very important, and it's not only important to have data because you will be flooded with huge amounts of data. What's more important is to filter that data, make use of it, and visualize it in a way that works for you and in a way that you can understand, analyze, and deliver.
0: So you made an excellent point there, and obviously it's one of situational awareness that as the commander, the closer you're in, the closer you in, the less view you have. And so sitting back, taking in the bigger picture, some people call it the helicopter view, the 10,000-foot view, et cetera, allows you to be more situationally aware, to gather the situation, and to make and take those command decisions, which in fact is your lesson number six, of course, decision-making. So for me, the lesson
1: related to decision making is that command is all about making hard decisions and then standing liable and accountable for these decisions regardless of the outcome. So this is what command is about. At, uh, in, in times of uh, crisis, when you are responding, you don't have the luxury of calling your boss to negotiate what would be a politically correct decision to make. This, you don't have yep. the luxury of time. So you will need to make decisions on your own. What matters is that to stick to your standards, to international standards that you have learned, to your training, to remain flexible in terms of your decision-making and as much as possible to rely on data. So if you have the data, if you can visualize it, then you can base your decisions on data. But what's most important is to know when to ask for help. If there's something that you do not know, just don't make uh, 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 don't make rush decisions just because you need to make a decision. Ask for help when you know that this there's something beyond your field of expertise or beyond of uh, your 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 areas of uh, knowledge.
0: Excellent, and that leads nicely into again your lesson number seven that you are not alone. Of course, coordinate and communicate. You are not
1: alone. So whenever you are responding to a mass incident, you will have plenty of resources there. Hospitals, security forces, other responding uh, agencies. You need to work with these together. So you need to move from competition, which is normally the case, unfortunately, in, in many of these places, uh, into coordination and collaboration to ensure the best outcome for the uh, victims of the uh, incidents. And this means co-locating coordinating, communicating, and jointly understanding what are the risks so that you can have altogether a shared situational awareness of the situation at hand and accordingly make use of the available resources in order to avoid duplication. And a great example of this is what happened with the St. George Hospital. So by the time we were informed about the situation of St. George Hospital, it was a joint uh, effort between us and the uh, uh, hospital staff in order to ensure a proper evacuation of one of the biggest university hospitals in the country with over 350 uh, beds and 350 patients, including ICUs, COVID units, uh, pediatric ICUs, neonatal ICU, and so on. So when you actually join efforts and have situational awareness of what's happening on, you can plan accordingly and mobilize your resources accordingly in this, in, in in coordination with other responding agencies, to be able to manage the response.
0: Excellent. So, lesson number eight, and uh, I've been waiting for this one to come along because it's vitally important, but it has to be in there somewhere. Rescuers' well-being is a priority. Um, we've, you know, we've been through the pandemic. We realise that all of our people putting into the situation, whether it's dealing with massive amounts of COVID death, whether it's dealing with lots of lots of natural disaster or whether it's just dealing with the call volume that's going on. Certainly in the U.S. these days, we are being overfaced with demand. Um, and so well-being is important.
1: The well-being of the rescuers is as important as responding to any emergency. So it's of utmost importance. I think it's it's our responsibilities as commanders to identify san- signs of burnout ahead of time. And I was mentioning planning like a couple of minutes ago. So when you plan, you need to plan for the well-being of the rescuers. People cannot go on the job for 12 hours responding to such an incident and at the same time we expect them to have and to perform in the same level of proficiency and in the same level of uh, competency as like 12 hours into the uh, response, specifically as they were expected to behave at time zero of the response. So in order to avoid burnout, I think it's very important to plan for for the well-being of rescuers ahead of time, to plan for possible uh, uh, rotations. And what is as important is, so we always end up our responses with an after-action review in order to conduct a technical debrief. We have identified that psychological debrief is as important as technical debriefs. So people who respond to such emergencies need to go into psychological debrief, need to hear to normalize their feelings and to hear that it's only what they're going through are only normal reactions to abnormal incidents that they have experienced. And then these people need to be referred to a specialized care if they identify the need to
0: do that. Excellent. You had hinted before that command and the commander is a lonely place. Uh, your lesson number nine, don't forget yourself and don't lose yourself amidst the crisis. So, um, we have just talked
1: about the well being of our uh, volunteers, of our staff. Commanders are not superheroes. So, they themselves also need to take care of their own well being because their well being will affect the quality of the decisions that they make. Again, you cannot expect someone to be in a command cell for 12 hours and expect the same quality of decisions. Produced 12 hours into command as those produced mm-hmm. during the first hour of command. So it's very important to, for us as well as commanders, not to push too hard, to take breaks, to have pulse checks, to know our limitations. And one thing as simple as don't forget to go into the bathroom. I remember that night I, I, I spent like 12 hours in the command room and then I was like, oh, I've been here for 12 hours drinking coffee and drinking water and I just forgot to take just a few minutes for myself just to go to the, to the to the bathroom which is which is crazy because you are so taken by this the adrenaline is so high you are fully engaged and then you just forget about yourself so now I'm, I made it a part of my daily practice I take breaks pulse checks self uh, self checks every couple of hours just to make sure that I'm still okay and if I'm I feel that Whatever is going on is affecting my decision making. Then I can ask for someone to replace me.
0: Right, indeed, and of course, events such as this—and uh, it's an old, an old, well-used phrase—but uh, these are marathons and not sprints. And uh, during the the London 7/7 bombings, I was a support gold commander, and the first thing I did was to actually stand my deputy down, and uh, he was a little bit slightly miffed. And why am I doing that? I said because in 12 hours' time, you're on deck because I'm going to be worn and therefore yeah. we need to get into that command routine immediately. Even if it only lasts a couple of hours, you need to be prepared for it to last a lot, lot longer and actually put steps and measures into place for the longevity of the operation. And, of course, one of the things we all, we we love to talk about emergency response sometimes we forget to think about the recovery which the response can take a day or two days the recovery like with lebanon like with new orleans is years and years and years and years and years but uh, obviously you need to have some you need to be prepared to look after yourself but also to you know to stand down and rest Lesson 10, very important, I think. And uh, they say that, uh, you know, the inquiry begins or the investigation begins at the same moment the incident does. And so people are looking and trying to learn, but uh, I make mistakes. Yeah. So um, I think
1: this was a very important lesson for me. Um, It's accepting that we will make mistakes and learning how to admit, accept, and learn from our mistakes. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in Doha, uh, attending a conference and I remember Dr. Henry Marsh, one of the greatest neurosurgeons, uh, probably in history was there as a keynote speaker. And, uh, he had a slide. Uh, I remember it was a black slide that had only a few words in white and it said, I make mistakes. And then we were like, Oh, this is Henry Marsh. Henry Marsh doesn't make mistakes. And then this was followed directly by another slide, slide which said other people are better at seeing my mistakes than I am. And, and this is so true because um, as w- when, we, when we are in command, we assume that we are invincible and invulnerable and we're just the tough guys making all the decisions. And then things start hitting you when you go into the after action reviews and you go play that. A, a timeline of incidents and events and your decisions and you try to review every single decision that you made and this can be really uh, harmful for your uh, mental well-being. So I think one of the key things that we need to teach our commanders about and we need to train our commanders about is that it's okay. It's it's only normal to make mistakes and uh, what matters is to learn from these mistakes and to use them in order to improve your future responses and that's why yeah that's why for example for us we did multiple evaluations i i remember at least two of them uh, that were conducted by external people and always i was always asking what could i have done better and then the right question was what did i learn from this and what will i do differently next time rather than what i could have done better in the past
0: i think that obviously is, is the last of your 10 points, but I think it's vitally important to think about that for a second because, you know, in, in this day and age, you know, that process of after-action reviews also leads to witch hunts, to focuses of blame, to, you know, lawsuits, et cetera. But of course, an organization cannot learn unless it looks deeply into what just happened. And then, yeah. as I, again, I, I'll talk about lessons identified versus lessons learned. We identified what went wrong, but we sim- we singularly fail to learn from it and so therefore we will continue to carry the errors forward into the next event and so you make excellent points and we must learn and then and um, how do we how do we learn well we identify the issue and then we drill we rehearse we practice if necessary we realign our uh, operational manuals etc cetera, etc cetera but we have to do that in order to evolve. Otherwise we just, you know, isn't it the definition of madness doing the same thing continuously and getting the same results. And so, um, you know, I'm glad you ended with that. And, uh, um, obviously the recovery, I mean, we're any really in, in the grand scheme of timelines, we're not far out from, from this explosion. And so how has the recovery gone? So, um,
1: I would speak from a personal perspective and then from an organizational perspective. Um, For me, I do believe the after action reviews, the evaluations helped me a lot uh, in addition to the psychological debrief and all the uh, support that I got uh, in terms of organization, uh, of the organization itself, a lot of learning has been uh, integrated already into our uh, uh, protocols. Uh, one of the big things that for example, uh, for us was moving from the seed sort triage into the 10 second triage, because we uh, we have discovered that the seed triage took much more time than anticipated, uh, in real time, uh, we have, uh, started taking into consideration more, uh, activities related to our dynamic, uh, how to manage dynamic incidents. In terms of communication, communication was one of the lessons identified in most of the responses that we have taken. Nothing has been made to address it. So it, we always say it's a lesson learned, but it was never learned. It was always the same issue. So this time we are changing completely our communication protocol and we're moving more into joint decision-making. So from an organizational perspective, the recovery is still taking place, Rob. We are unlearning uh, many of the previous practices which uh, stood up uh, 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 as static uh, pillars of EMS in the past and relearning new things. And this process of unlearning and relearning takes time. So I think we are still recovering from from the response to port explosion.
0: Excellent. As we come to an end, Shalky I'm going to ask my classic Rob ending question. Is there anything I've forgotten to ask you or anything you need to tell us in conclusion? I think that that that's it. It was
1: fantastic to, to talk to you about this, Rob. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So uh, if we want to follow you, I know that uh, you're active on some social media, but uh, how can we keep up with you uh, in, and your work? So uh, I'm active on
1: uh, Twitter at S. Dean and on LinkedIn, S.
0: Dean Wonderful. So if you're listening to this on a podcast, what what an amazing discussion we've just had. Um, If you're watching this on YouTube, and this is a a message to you podcast listeners, Shorky has uh, sent over his slide deck. And so you're able to see some of the images and graphics uh, from that day. And obviously, uh, Shorky's uh, takeaways. And so you can uh, consume that and and enjoy that. So that's been another fantastic edition of uh, EMS One Stop. I'd like to thank uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Shorky Amin-Adeen. Shorky, thank you, sir. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for the opportunity. Don't forget uh, that you can keep up with me on LinkedIn. Just look up uh, Rob Lawrence. Also, I'm on Twitter at UKRobL1, and you can keep up with stuff there. Um, everything that we've talked about will be uh, in the show notes, the links, uh, etc. And so for now, that's been another edition of EMS One Stop. I've been your host, Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now.